Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we're going back to Voices 2018. I first met Lucy Green about a decade ago in London before she moved to New York to take on the role of worldwide director of the innovation group at J. Walter Thompson. When I last saw her, Lucy told me about her fascinating book, Silicon States. As Silicon Valley faces increased scrutiny over its mistreatment of women, cultural shortcomings, and its role in widespread Russian election interference, we are learning where its interests truly lie and about the great power these companies wield over an unsuspecting citizenry. So what will it look like when we're living in the Silicon state? Here's Lucy Green at Voices 2018. Hello. <laughs> so rather aptly, this slide title is uh, Big Tech versus the State. And I think that's something we're really starting to take stock of, right? That big tech is increasingly um, superseding the role of the government economically, ideologically, transcending regional governments, <laughs> clearly. It's interesting, when I first started looking at this, this issue or this tension in 2014, um, consumer awareness of this wasn't like it is now, which I would say now it really has reached like widespread public awareness and criti critical thinking. But in 2014, I guess it was viewed very differently. It was viewed very exciting. As viewed very exciting, these companies were synonymous with the future, and it was sort of about a, a widespread optimism for this like big mission that tech had. But it was at a talk in 2014 in November at the Web Summit, which was then held in in Dublin. Um, that I really started to get a glimpse of how the implications of these companies and their expanded mission could be a little bit more complicated, to say the least. I'm, I'm just going to play you a video. It's, the, the, it's that conversation. It's uh, an interview that Caroline Daniel, who was then uh, editor of the FT Weekend, um, she was speaking with Peter Thiel. And I'll give you a bit more background on that after it's played. I wonder if you could just engage with that a bit about why, you know, you said before that... Uh, Washington DC is dominated by law and process, Silicon Valley by engineers and substance, which is a pretty, you know, strong statement. But, you know, what about the role of the, uh, you know, people who aren't in the Silicon Valley and uh, do you really have the right as, you know, the technologists to uh, determine and say we're going to change the world? Well, um, you know, it's, uh, these questions of rights are always very tricky. You can always flip it around and say, what gives the people in D.C. the right to stop um, medical inventions that could save many people's lives? Or what gives people the right to, to, to stop technology in, in, in one form or, or another? Um, I, I, I do think there's this enormous gulf that separates the two, which is why they, they communicate quite, uh, quite poorly. Questions of science and technology are not high priorities in politics. Um, you know, I, I, did, uh, I did a count of this. There are 535 senators and congressmen in uh, D.C. By a generous count, 35 of them have a background in science, engineering, technology of any sort. The rest of them do not understand that you know, windmills don't work when the wind isn't blowing or solar panels don't work at night. Um, and they're basically still living in the Middle Ages in, in one way or another. And so, um, so I think you have this, uh, you have this enormous uh, gulf that, that, that is to be crossed. But I think, you know, I think the, uh, I, I do think the, uh, the, 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 the you know, the, um, I, I do think, I do think the, the part of the premise people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, I think, would, qu would question is that um, it's not as though we're living in a perfect world. We're living in a world in which there are enormous problems. There are many things that are incredibly screwed up. And, uh, and so I think it is Im imperative on us to try to fix these problems as quickly as possible. And sometimes that means, um, you know, um, not asking for per permission, but really asking for forgiveness later. 
Wow. <laughs> it's almost prophetic now, isn't it, when you think about it? I love the windmill comment in particular. Um, that talk wasn't in isolation at the, the Web Summit that year. You had also Shervin Pishavar talking about um, Hyperloop and how it was going to redraw the world map with these high-speed um, bullet trains, uh, pneumatic tubes that would redraw the world and, and make bend space and time. You had uh, Peter Thiel elsewhere talking about the idea to, of solving aging or hacking aging. Google had uh, backed Calico, a biotech um, longevity company. You also had in the background um, Google and Facebook embarking on various missions, the sort of precursors to free basics that Chris talked about. Um, talking about bringing balloons or using various airships to sort of uh, bring internet to developing company, uh, uh, countries and sort of the, the inference was to sort of civilize while connecting them. Um, at the same time, these sort of these companies that had risen on the, the rhetoric of being like plucky startups had started to take themselves a lot more seriously, right? So around the same time, they were commissioning these superstar architects to create lavish headquarters um, as almost like 3D versions of their philosophy in each in each example, creating 3D environments of their, their brand identity and memorializing themselves a little bit like the Victorian industrialists. So I started to think about what the implications of that would be as they moved into uh, health, education, again, with this rhetoric of fixing problems, um, and what it might actually look like if we were living in the Silicon State. So you have me at one of the numerous conferences, and this is Las Vegas, a particularly special place in January after Christmas when all you want is healthy food, and there is not a single vegetable in Las Vegas, I'm just telling you now. It's my personal joy every January. Um, it took me to Cuba, where I um, met with people firsthand uh, experiencing Google and also China technology companies trying to connect um, Cuba for the first time. Um, I actually went to the uh, Hyperloop headquarters and interviewed the CEO. I went to Alt School, one of the many new educational um, tech uh, companies being backed by Silicon Valley VCs and, and Mark Zuckerberg, among others. But I also met with people at the intersection of government and technology. So people like Puneet Ahira. She started out as a Googler, really interesting person, and then worked with Megan Smith, another Googler, as CTO. Um, for the Barack Obama administration, really trying to bring in um, the top talent from Silicon Valley to reinvent and reinvigorate government services. So really sort of trying to counter this sort of Peter Thiel rhetoric that government is slow and cumbersome, which has actually been very helpful for them in, in placing themselves as these great innovators and builders of the future. So we're now at this point where we're, I wouldn't call it necessarily a new era, but a sort of accelerated era, where we have this quite unique relationship between um, big tech and the state. And um, it's one where increasingly, uh, through a multitude of ways and a multi multi multitude of, I guess, like pincer movements, uh, big tech is eroding the power of the state. So you have technologies displacing revenue from the state. So private companies like Uber becoming a de facto way that people commute in places like New York. Um, you have technologies creating efficiencies that create unemployment, creating more pressure on the state. You have companies putting more pressure on resources but not paying taxes, as we've seen with Amazon's infamous new um, headquarters being announced in New York. Um, you also have this sort of soft power battle going on. You know, the fact that um, it's no longer NASA taking us to space or leading life sciences. It's, it's, it's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, right? 
Um, but also these tech companies increasingly becoming very vocally critical of governments, or if not, using their audiences like uh, with Airbnb and, Airbnb and Uber to mobilize against government legislation. So taken together is this really interesting picture. And at the same time, we have big tech becoming like a key vendor to government. I mean, it's all, also doing all the sort of traditional stuff like becoming a lobbyist and so on. But as tech becomes essentially everything, it's becoming a vendor for military services, for communication, in addition to, of course, distorting political discourse. So at the same time, you also have big tech stepping into or like really distorting adjacent power centers to government. So when you think about it, the fourth estate was always the, the check on power, right? Um, yes, I've got this gigantic picture of Trump. Like, I bet they love that um, in all his orangeness. But, you know... It's interesting to me that there is so much outcry when you see Trump, and to be fair, I'm, you know, to be completely, you know, of course his attacks on media are dangerous, um, but ironically Trump's criticism of the, the media sort of actually boosts media sales. Um, big tech actually presents way more of an existential threat to the press than Trump ever could, whether you're Google, Facebook, increasingly Amazon as like media companies. Um, supplanting or, or really distorting, affecting the businesses of, of newspaper industry, or if you are a Peter Thiel who chooses a, um, after, as part of a personal debtor in an unrelated celebrity law lawsuit to shut down a media organization. And what's interesting about the t connection between tech and Trump is that while not as extreme as Trump, they also have similar attitudes to the media. They're, they're not transparent. They don't like meaningful dialogue. Um, they don't, uh, they'd like to be highly controlling, or if you're in the case of Elon Musk, you're actively sort of demonizing the press. So you also have uh, tech moving into other uh, power centers, and particularly in the US is interesting, the move into big philanthropy. So in places like the US, philanthropy actually occupies quite a unique political role in terms of being a sort of supplement to the welfare state. And you have uh, uh, tech leaders moving into ph uh, philanthropy and philanthropical um, Anthropical uh, giving at an unprecedented rate, but also taking this same rhetoric that, wow, <laughs> it's really pouring, um, that philanthropy is broken or you're doing it all wrong, we need to fix it. And so they're taking a different approach to it. Um, the set of problems that they're addressing is very interesting. They're looking at science. Um, education, kind of, they tend to be the sexier, more marketable problems. The language is always a conclusively solving an issue rather than sort of su subtly alleviating it. Um, and they're less interested in the less sexy problems, so they're not going to be looking at the opioid crisis anytime soon. It's all about sort of, as Mark Zuckerberg had, solving disease, or in Jeff Bezos's case, um, fixing cancer, um, which is all, of, all broadly speaking positive, but like, what happens when that replaces all philanthropy and charitable work? So interesting in this moment as they move into more civic and, and uh, state-regulated sectors. Um, this is a rendering of Google's uh, forthcoming... Uh, it's, it's in actually Toronto, a new city designed, as they said, from the internet up. Which is interesting in this moment when we're only just realizing now the full implications of social media and its impact on society, which is a sort of core product of technology companies. Um, they didn't foresee any of the implications of these technologies on social media, so it's kind of interesting and quite troubling to think about what that could mean if they're designing entire civic environments. Um, same with schools, same with potentially with healthcare, you're seeing big tech move into consumer-facing health services like DNA blood testing, microbiome testing, fertility testing, but also working with the NHS 
on various um, initiatives to use AI to create efficiencies, creating new questions of personal data and privacy in areas that we hadn't seen before. Also designing new alternative systems, so not just cities, but thinking about transport systems. So this is Uber's vision for the ultimate on-demand, multi-channel, scooter, flying car system that we might use instead of the subway someday. This kind of links to what Chris was talking about with free basics, so moving into territories where uh, there is no internet or moving into new territories which they get to define. So this is Musk moving to space, uh, leading us to space among other tech leaders, not people like NASA, although NASA is often funding a lot of this, um, but thereby getting to define what that looks like, right? So alongside the sort of the feat of having conquered this new frontier in space travel, space is actually set to be a major industry, and so tech players are going to be able to define what that looks like and be able to benefit from it as well, from asteroid mining to big satellite networks offering um, internet. As Chris alluded to with Free Basics, going into virgin territories like developing markets that don't have access to the internet, they're moving in um, and being able to create new internets but controlling what that internet is and what people's experience of the internet is. So I get asked a lot, is this any different to before? Like we've seen the Victorian industrialists, we've seen big farm, we've seen other industries that have had political influence, that have owned publications. And there is a lot of parallels, of course, but I would argue that there are new things, and it's partly because of um, the way that we interact with technology, which is becoming sort of symbi symbiotic with the way that we, we live. Um, I love this quote by Leslie Berlin, who's a leading Silicon Valley academic at Stanford. She said, the word I would use is intimacy. We have an intimate relationship with these technologies, and that colors our sense of who we are, and that is new. And that is the way that Silicon Valley has gotten under everybody's skin. Really fantastic insight there. But you also have this outsized cultural influence, which I would argue that industrial leaders have not had before. You don't see the leaders of Pharma or even like Ford appearing on magazines in this relentless, deitizing fashion. There's been a whole bank of media publications dedicated to charting every move of these guys. There's also a common thread I think you'll notice here um, <laughs> in that, like, basically, a very, very, very distinct demographic is being aligned with a massive narrative of, of success and entrepreneurialism and invention um, in the US and globally. Um, there is this, it's also led to this idea or the, the rise of consumer tech generally in the way it's marketed to this idea of techceptionalism, I call it. So in marketing all these consumer tech products, they're being um, marketed and positioned as something much more exceptional than just utilities or services. The internet is about freedom, it's about all these other ideological things. Um, and it's made us less um, interested in questioning them or regulating them in, them in the same way, or allowed these companies to sidestep that sort of similar scrutiny by claiming that, this, that the internet is somehow special. So why should we question now? I mean, I think that's kind of, that's obvious, democracy, just that like thing. Um, but also that we are, as, as Chris alluded to as well, this whole relationship with the internet is shifting. So it goes way beyond social media. The way increasingly we're going to be interacting with the internet is going to be completely ambient. Internet is going to become like the air around us, something we speak to, something that responds to us visually. Um, with 5G, uh, whole new things are going to be connected to the internet. And with that, uh, new aspects of the human experience are going to generate data points and therefore be commoditized. And that puts this group as in the place of intermediaries to the human experience. 
Um, you also have the fact that a lot of the stuff that they're offering, even though it is sort of has altruistic rhetoric attached to it, are not, none of them are 100% solutions. So these scooter companies, a lot of them talk about themselves as like solving the last mile problem in public transport, which of course is not true. Uber says it's, you know, is making transport more affordable. It's making taxis more affordable to middle-class consumers. It's not a last-mile solution. Um, and it's displacing revenue from the subway, which will eventually ghettoise services like the subway. Airbnb would say it's democratizing travel and providing a lifeline to middle-class consumers. Um, but it's also distorting rents in major cities and pushing out people who can't afford to live there. There's also this sort of famed empathy gap of the people creating these systems, which makes it troubling if they are designing sort of bigger systemic civic um, services, uh, or uh, also the lack of self-awareness. I would say that Elon Musk is a good example of that. Someone needs to tell him uh, it doesn't look good. Um, and this is in part due to the, the, the lack of diversity in these companies. You know, um, it goes way beyond actually beyond gender, gender, race, class. Um, a huge sense of privilege in a lot of these companies. Already you see biases like that emerging. The fact that um, Twitter is now a sort of a, a, a misogynistic experience for women. Amnesty International framed it within human rights terms. Um, you have silly things like, you know, the fact that all the, ch uh, the chat assistants are women. Some would say normalizing sexist tropes. Well, that is actually except for IBM Watson because, you know, he's the expert, of course. So what can be done about this? Well, culture could do a, big, a lot about this, but... Um, it could be a newly empowered state. Like, uh, arguably, a lot of this has been allowed to happen, in part because, particularly in the US, big tech is aligned to uh, America's geo-economic strength. So it's been in America's interest, technically, for these companies to be so strong. Um, but what we're seeing now is a real awareness of the need to sort of em engage in democracy and get particularly young people actively involved in democracy, not just using social media. Um, so interestingly, uh, the Obama Foundation is starting to actively market civic engagement to young people. It sounds like an interesting thing, like rebranding, being part of, of, uh, of government and trying to get more young people into government. You're seeing the first digital natives, the millennials, starting to run, which I think is going to be super interesting, particularly as you see the voter base becoming newly, um, newly anointed Gen Zs who are hyper-digital natives and super progressive. I hesitate to use Apple's symbol as like one of sort of ethical responsibility, although I think that the, it's really interesting that they're pinning to their, their colors to the mast about data privacy being human right. It does sit within their business model, just to be clear. Um, but I think it's interesting that when you think about Apple as like a consumer tech thought leader, I think it could actually create demand among consumers en masse for more privacy controls by putting this statement in such strong terms. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion. BOF Professional members receive unlimited access to all of our articles, daily members-only analysis, the BOF Professional iPhone app, biannual print issues, and all of our online education courses as part of your membership. For a limited time only, we are offering BOF podcast listeners an exclusive discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. To get 25% off of your first year, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special invitation code PODCAST2019 at the checkout. We hope you enjoy it, and don't forget to tell your friends.